Stories from your community. This is the 519 Podcast, part of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network. When you think of the Ku Klux Klan, would you consider them to be strictly American? A racist enterprise restricted to the southern United States with little to no influence in any other country? Especially not Canada, right? Sadly, that's not the case. Well, in the early 1900s, when the Klan's ideals bled across the border into southwestern Ontario. It was during this time saw a parade of thousands of clansmen dressed in their pillowcase robes where crosses were burned in their signature meetings. It's not exactly a bright spot in Ontario's history, needless to say, and it's not overly well known either. So it begs the question, what was the Klan doing in Canada? This episode of the 519 Podcast is hosted by Haley Cheng to start a brief history of the founding of the Ku Klux Klan in America. This is Alan Bartley, author of the book The Ku Klux Klan in Canada, A Century of Promoting Racism and Hate in the Peaceable Kingdom. The Ku Klux Klan uh, is an American, was an American organization that uh, began in the last years of the U.S. Civil War and then into the late 1860s. And it was an organization of uh, white landowners in the southern United States, which uh, and the uh, South was being occupied by the Union Army, and slaves had been freed, and Northerners were arriving in the South to take advantage of the economic opportunities. And the white landowners in particular felt the need to protect themselves. Comes the early years of the 20th century, there's an uptick in interest in the Klan, primarily generated by a book uh, written by uh, a Southerner uh, glorifying the Klan. It's called The Klansman. Uh, the Klansman as a book uh, became a play, and then it became a movie called Birth of a Nation. The Birth of a Nation by D.W. Griffith was likely one of the most racist movies to have ever hit the big screens. It's still considered to be the most controversial film ever made in the United States. It portrayed the Ku Klux Klan in a positive light, while painting black Americans as villains. It really just took any false and racist stereotype and put it on camera. It was a major step backwards in racial equality in the United States. Its popularity drove a massive shift in the interest towards the Klan. Birth of a Nation opened in Toronto in the fall of 1915, and it played in theaters in Toronto and across the country uh, for many, many years, well into the 1920s. And essentially, it was a recruiting film for the Klan because it showed uh, the Klan in a heroic light. Uh, every time Birth of a Nation uh, was shown in theaters across the country, there was a spate of cross burnings, uh, usually in the, in the wake of the movie appearing. And of course, the burning cross was the iconic image of the Klan, and it happened to coincide with Birth of a Nation in the movies. So it was a nice melding of iconic imagery and the movies, and it made a huge impression on the public, both in the United States and in Canada. With the movie bringing interest to the Klan in Ontario, the border cities began to recruit. Aside from the proximity, the Klan also had some roots in place inside of Ontario to make the Canadian chapter a little easier to set up. And London was a particular magnet for the Klan, in part because some of the early recruiters had connections to London or to the, to the London area. One of the early recruiters was an individual named Alman Charles Monteith, uh, whose father had a farm uh, at Dulwich, south of London. 
and he had gone to the States and then came back and was selling clan memberships and doing it quite successfully until he was arrested in Hamilton in uh, 1924. When the clan came to London, they weren't exactly secretive either. There was one instance where they went as far as putting an ad in the paper to promote an upcoming meeting. They were bold, and not as many people as you'd hope were outraged by it. They were very good at taking advantage of existing tensions and and friction and using it for their own purposes. And that's very much what happened in, in Ontario and in southern Ontario. And so the clan organizers... Uh, were staunch defenders of the Protestant faiths. They were opposed to the influence of the Catholic Church. They were very much opposed to non-white races having any kind of role in Canadian society, Ontario society. Uh, and that was the environment in which the Klan arrived in, in the province. It also took advantage in Ontario in particular uh, with a period after the First World War where there was a lot of uncertainty, uh, both economically and politically and socially. And that built on some long-held tensions in, in society and in southern Ontario. Uh, it also came at a time when the political order uh, was sort of fracturing. Uh, liberals and conservatives had been very much the political forces in the province for many, many decades, uh, but after the First World War, you have a uh, fraying of some of those party lines and the rise of the Progressive Party in Ontario. So you had a new set of political factors at play, uh, and the Klan arrived in this mix of social, political, economic tensions and stresses, and they received a very warm welcome from the public, took advantage of... Uh, existing prejudices and use them for their own ends. The Klan grew in popularity leading into the mid-20s. They called themselves the Ku Klux Klan of Canada, Canada spelled with a K, which probably wasn't necessary. They established a network that ran all over the province, and once this happened, it became clear just how many people had signed up. In 2014, old clan documents were found, including a member recruitment card, stating the general principles that the KKK in Canada believed in. This is what some people were signing on to. Protestantism, white supremacy, Gentile economic freedom, just laws and liberty, pure patriotism, separation of church and state, freedom of speech and press, restrictive and selective immigration, law and order, higher moral standards, our public schools, and freedom from mob violence. Recognize a few of these from the last few years? Well, these were cards given out to new member recruits all across southwestern Ontario in the 1920s. There were rallies held across the province, in London, in Hamilton, in Belleville, in Kingston, in Brockville near Ottawa, and it was not unusual for these rallies to attract thousands of participants, 5,000, 10,000, 15. There were rallies in Kingston that brought in 20,000, 25,000 people. So these were significant public events that were built primarily around promoting the various messages that the Klan wanted to promote around race and language and religion. Uh, this is where new members were brought in. They paid their money. They bought their robes. 
and they were sworn in in a public way uh, by the light of burning crosses. Naturally, a new member's first response would be to wear their new clan regalias in public as part of clan parades. By the mid-1920s, the clan had gained enough personnel to host massive public displays on main streets in towns and throughout some of Ontario's largest cities. It was a way to both attract more members while intimidating people of different races and religions. It's pretty shocking to find that these events took place in our very own backyard. Clan had set up a national organization based in an office in Toronto, uh, led by an American um, named Charles Lewis Fowler, C.L. Fowler. Um, his associate was a, another American named James Henry Hawkins. Uh, and they were making money at a vigorous pace during 1925-1926, so much so that they fought over the money, uh, and they ended up splitting the business, and Charles Lewis Fowler uh, headed up the Ku Klux Klan of Canada organization, and James Henry Hawkins headed up the Ku Klux Klan of the British Empire, a rival uh, organization, and both groups recruited across the province. Hawkins was particularly active in southwestern Ontario uh, in 1925, in September of 1925, uh, pardon me, August of 1925. Uh, he hosted a rally in downtown London that brought in a couple of hundred people, sold memberships, uh, made the usual points about race, religion, and language. Uh, and so that was a fairly minor, small-time rally uh, compared to the one in St. Thomas a couple of years later, which was hosted by John Hothersall, who was a uh, stockbroker in London. The rally held by the St. Thomas clan in September 1927 was the clan's boldest public appearance yet. Up until then, they appeared in public anonymously, covered head to toe in white robes and hoods so that their faces would be hidden. They even had face covers on the horses they rode through parades, although probably more for looks than protecting their identities. But regardless, they were very secretive to say the least. However, this rally was different. So the St. Thomas rally was one of the early opportunities for the clan to make a statement about who the clan members were by allowing the members and the participants to, to parade without their masks on. So people could see who their friends and neighbors were in the clan. So you had several hundred clan members paraded down the main street in St. Thomas. They rallied at the park, they heard speeches, and then they went on their way. The St. Thomas rally was also noteworthy uh, because it included not just participants from across southern Ontario, but it brought in uh, several scores of Americans from Michigan uh, who joined the rally in order to uh, beat the drum loudly, if I can put it that way, and try and drum up new members. That was reported in London, it was reported in the Toronto newspapers, and there were photographs taken and so on and so forth. So it was a big deal. London and St. Thomas weren't the only cities with considerable clan activity. Dorchester also got in on the fun. In many ways, the rivalry between C.L. Fowler and James Henry Hopkins were beneficial to the clan's agenda of expanding throughout Canada. You had um, C.L. Fowler arriving 
from the rival organization uh, and hosting an organ a rally in Dorchester Fairgrounds uh, that brought in a couple of thousand people, uh, cross burning, swearing in of new members, uh, and an opportunity to basically uh, um, demonstrate that James Henry Hawkins wasn't the only Klansman in town and that Fowler could also draw a big crowd, could also sell memberships, and could initiate to, uh, new members and new, new clan uh, organizations. So these were the major events during this period. Despite the Klan's ideologies, the rallies and demonstrations hosted in London, St. Thomas and Dorchester were considered peaceful. But as time passed, the Klan continued to grow and became more aggressive. There were a number of other less savory gatherings. Um, in Bryanstown, for example, there was a rally outside of the house of a man who was rumored to be spending time with a, a black woman. Uh, and he was warned in no uncertain terms that the relationship had to end. Uh, and there were similar events elsewhere uh, in the region where black citizens and their friends and neighbors were subject to targeting and intimidation and threats. Although these sorts of acts against people of color and mixed-race couples were awful, they were not the worst events of the sort to happen in Canada. In some places, Klan members went beyond intimidation, assaulting people who were not white Protestants and had different beliefs as them. The biggest act of violence towards a non-Protestant establishment came in 1926. Uh, there was a major rally in Barrie in, on the 24th of May weekend, uh, and several thousand people participating from across the province, uh, new members being recruited, memberships sold. Uh, a few weeks later, in early June, uh, there was an explosion outside St. Mary's Catholic Church in Barrie. Dynamite had been placed against the outside wall of the church, and it blew a major hole in the side of the church. Uh, and it didn't take long before the public and police uh, were hearing stories that this was a Klan attack, that it was intended to emulate the same kinds of things that were going on in this in the United States. Three Klan members were responsible for the bombing. They were all later arrested for the act. The KKK was able to remain untouched by law enforcement for so long because they presented themselves as a social club and a fraternity. However, it was starting to become clear that they had the potential to move beyond parades, rallies, and other public outings with their like-minded friends. They could also become violent and dangerous if they became anything like their more organized American counterparts. By this point in the history of the Klan in Ontario, uh, law enforcement uh, had become concerned about the activities of the Klan, the activities of the organizers, and some of the public safety implications of the Klan and its membership and its activities. By this time, the Attorney General in Ontario, William Nickel, had told the OPP uh, that he would like them to focus on the Klan and its activities. And when it became clear that the Klan was behind the bombing in Barrie... Although law enforcement started to clamp down on the actions of the Klan, they really had a hand in their own demise. They didn't have the makings to last forever. They had no political goals nor motives. In most cases, they were just a disorganized group of bigoted people burning crosses in their backyards. Eventually, they began to crumble on their own. Leaders of the Klan movement all around Canada were taking membership proceeds for themselves. 
It happened so frequently that it began to seem like joining the clan was really just a pyramid scheme. Really, what the Ku Klux Klan was in Canada was a terribly run organization. It was really all about making money and creating a spectacle and encouraging people to buy memberships, buy robes, buy the literature, buy the regalia. Uh, the clan had four or five factories in Georgia that were devoted to turning out robes, uh, the white robes and the white hoods uh, that we're familiar with as being the clan symbols. So this was, in essence, a commercial operation, uh, and it was about the sales. By the late 1920s, there was clear evidence of criminality and fraud on the part of many of the leadership figures. Fowler, for example, and Hawkins uh, took off to the States with as much money as they could put their hands on. Um, some of the other more local Canadian figures uh, did the same thing, but in a much smaller and less dramatic way. You could argue that the market was saturated by the late 1920s. A couple of journalists made the point that there were no more fools to be tricked into buying clan memberships. Uh, anybody who was so inclined and had the money had already ponied up, uh, and there weren't many of those kinds of marks left to take advantage of. There was also, uh, I think, a view that... Uh, this kind of activity had run its course, uh, and if you had that kind of money to spend, you certainly did not have it after 1929, early 1930s, when the Depression hit. And so the Klan went into a sharp decline uh, in most places in the country. The Great Depression discouraged people from renewing their membership, as well as new members from joining. No one had the money to join or to keep up with their member dues. So there was a sharp decline in clan activities by the 30s. Then with the emergence of the Nazi party in Germany, anti-Semitism became the new focus of those who were a part of the Ku Klux Klan. But the Klan's views and ideas never completely disappeared from Canada. We still see demonstrations of white supremacy today, though instead of the KKK, it's been labeled as the alt-right. It's just the modes of recruiting that have changed. A lot of that activity has gone underground and online, so you don't see public manifestations of it, but you certainly see a growth in conspiracy theories and racist ideas and attitudes that are not new. They are what the Klan was selling a century ago, and they're being sold again in the 21st century, and we need, I think, to be very aware of and alert to these kinds of ideas and what they lead to. According to a UK study reported by the CBC in 2020, Canadians are the most active in online right-wing extremism, spreading white supremacy, misogyny, and other radical views. It goes to show that while it's been many, many years since the peak of the Canadian Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s, many of the views still remain. This episode of the 519 Podcast was written and produced by Patrick Magerman and Haley Cheng. It was hosted by Haley Chang. The 519 Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network. 